0: not destroy us and uh, just lead us to destruction at the end. And, and when God says, I, I want you to worship me, it is a good thing he asks us to do because he, he puts us and says, at the object of your worship is to be the very object of the universe itself, and it puts you in a very healthy, righteous position to be in. And so often linked with this is the second command uh, but I think it's it's very important, so much so that we look at it separately altogether. Uh, and so let's go to Exodus 20, and, and let's read, uh, really, verses 1 through 6. In honor of this being God's word, let's stand as we read this. And, and God literally did read this or speak this before the people. It was only later that they asked Moses to go on the mountain in their stead. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You may be seated. The Jews have read this and uh, have interpreted it mean that we should never make any uh, images at all. In fact, if you were to go into Jerusalem uh, in the ancient ruins, one of the ways they identify. Uh, a house as belonging to a Jew is that they would have in the wallpaper they used back then, they would never have images of people uh, or images of animals. And, uh, in fact, if you saw that, then you knew, okay, this wasn't a Jew that lived here. And they would have geometric uh, patterns and, and such. And so they, they took this passage and, and uh, made that application. But I would say that it's not talking about making portrayals of life and creation. In fact, you see that God himself instructed uh, in the tabernacle worship for that to be done. When you have the images of the pomegranates and the angels that were placed uh, and the tabernacle as, as uh, positions of worship. And so it's not just making images and portrayals of people and things of nature, but it's to make them with the purpose of worshiping them that you've crossed a very serious line. And so what I want to do is share with you why these things are forbidden and, and really what it is to have a graven image. This is often the command that we think, you know, I'm probably pretty safe uh of all the commandments i don't have any statues that i'm bowing down and worship i'll show up and i don't think i'll be convicted too bad about this still um, but I, I think i think by the end of this you'll you'll find that that will not be the case um, so i want to just kind of share some images uh here in front of you i just kind of did a uh search pictures of god online um, just to see what would come up uh you see a lot of pictures of jesus uh, but pictures of God are, are very uh, rare. Uh, and so I'm going to put up one here in front of you. Uh, when you think of God, what do you think of? Perhaps maybe a picture uh, that you might see on the screen at some point um, <laughs> this morning. Maybe you think of uh, Sistine Chapel or maybe the angry God version. Uh, this actually came off an atheist website um, and it gave us a good picture that we don't want. But for some of us, maybe at some time, we're thinking like this: maybe in the midst of sin, we we're, we're, we have this vision of, of God that might look something like this. This is this is the angry God uh, view, where He is looking down from the clouds, and it's it's not a, it's not a pretty sight. Um, Probably the, the more common view is something like this. This is something where we see off Sistine's Chapel where, where God and man is trying to connect and, and we've got this, this view of an old man, a, a grandfather. And it makes sense to view God as an old man because as we're a child, old represents, uh, elder, superior, the one who tells you what to do, who knows more than, uh, than you. And so we have this view. But as we go up, we often, Associated with not just being old, but also old-fashioned. Old-fashioned in the sense that he doesn't really understand the complexities of the youth today. I mean, he couldn't really explain the internet, could he? I mean, he couldn't, he doesn't know how to do these things, right? And so we've got this, this vision of, of God like that. And then, uh, for more contemporary, uh, folks, uh, we might have an, another view of, of God as given to us in the, uh, Almighty movies. Where he is actually Morgan Freeman. And, uh, I think, wow, okay. And because Morgan Freeman has this nice, rich voice, and he has this kind of wry sense of humor, and, and just a, uh, a gentleman. Uh, aspect to him and, and yet he, he seems to be pretty wise and maybe wiser than you. And, and, and so we've got this, this image and, and we always like to, uh, portray someone as, uh, someone who's not the, the white person. And so he is the one who represents the minorities as well. And, and so you, you've got this, this picture of, of God with Morgan Freeman and, and that's Noah with him. Um so here's some images. Now here's the problem with, with that. Uh, there's all kinds of problems with this, and I'm going to share with you uh, several problems that come with these images of God. Uh, why should we not have idols or images of God? First of all, what's very clear is that idols are nothing. Why should we bow down and worship to something that is nothing? First uh, Corinthians chapter 8, verse 4 through 6 brings very makes it pretty clear. Uh, why should we bow down to a tree, bow down to a statue? Paul explains this in, in regarding foods and what we eat and don't eat and whether we should eat foods presented to idols or not, uh, which they would, well, just so you know, they would put the best food, they would put the best steak, all right, and make that offering to the to the idols. And, and so those who had that storekeeping of the food presented would sell them. And so if you wanted the best steak, sometimes you would go to the place of idol worship because the best stakes were given there. Uh, and and so Paul is dealing with that. Uh, and so first Corinthians eight, four and six, he says this. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, and indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father from whom all things are for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. So we can go to societies, we can go to places where there are idols, and we can walk without fear of those idols. And when someone says to you, you better not walk there, you better not do that because that God will curse you, you can say... Well, let that God curse me because I believe that God is nothing and let nothing curse me. And if there is a spiritual power that is in that idol, that spiritual power is not greater than the than God, whose very spirit is within me. And so we walk without fear of the idols around us. They're nothing. And then secondly, idols are made by men. They're made by men. Isaiah 49, verse 9 through 20 is, I couldn't do any better than what that scripture itself says, so let's read that together. All who fashion idols are nothing, and the things they delight in do not profit. Their witnesses neither see nor know that they may be put to shame. Who fashions a God or casts an idol that is profitable for nothing? Behold. All his companions shall be put to shame. The craftsmen are only human. Let them all assemble. Let them stand forth. They shall be terrified. They shall be put to shame together. The iron smith takes a cutting tool, works it over the coals. He fashions it with hammers and works it with his strong arm. He becomes hungry and his strength fails. He drinks no water and is faint. The carpenter stretches a line. He marks it out with a pencil. He shapes it with planes and marks it with a compass. He shapes it into the figure of a man with the beauty of a man to dwell in a house. He cuts down cedars or he chooses a cypress tree and an oak and lets it grow strong among the trees of the forest. He plants a cedar and the rain nourishes it. Then it becomes fuel for a man. He takes a part of it and warms himself. He kindles a fire and bakes bread. Also, he makes a god and worships it. He makes it an idol and falls down before it. Half of it burns in the fire. Over the half eats meat and he roasts it and is satisfied. Also, he warms himself and says, Aha, I'm warm. I've seen the fire. And the rest of it he makes into a God. His idol. And he falls down to it and worships it. He prays to it. And says, Deliver me, for you are my God. They know not, nor do they discern. For he has shut their eyes so that they cannot see, and their hearts so they cannot understand. No one considers, nor is there knowledge or discernment to say, Half of it I burned in the fire. Also half break bread on its coals, and I roasted meat and have eaten. And shall I make the rest of it an abomination? Shall I fall down before a block of wood? He feeds on ashes and deluded heart has led him astray. And he cannot deliver himself or say, is there not a lie in my right hand? In other words, he's bringing out the idea, this thing that we're worshiping is made by nothing but a man. Why worship something made by a man? Feeling pretty good? You don't have idols in your home? Okay. Well, let's... Kind of get behind this a little bit. How do you make an idol? Does it not first start with your mind? Your imagination? How do I portray God? This is what he looks like. So the problem surely is outward. But before it it was a problem outward in making something, the problem began in your head. And that you imagined something. You imagined God to be something that he himself is not. Now, we're talking about graven images in our heart. Graven images in our mind when we've imagined him to be something that he is not. So you could also say that the word uh, images, imagine, is, is where we get the same idea, the word of imagine. You, you could also say, God's saying, you shall not imagine me in a way that I am not. So, why should we not do that? Well, let me tell you another reason. Images of God always conceal more than they reveal. Images of God always conceal more than they reveal. The pictures that we saw, maybe that's a part of God that is true. But there's a whole lot that's not been declared by that picture. Pictures, we say, speak a thousand words. But a thousand words... Create a multitude of pictures. There's a reason why God has chosen to reveal himself in words. And so we could have a picture. And the thing is that you cannot get the full complexion of who God is by a picture. You cannot put who is one who is spirit in one dimension and say, here he is. It will always conceal more than it reveals. So let me ask you, when you picture God, what do you choose? Get that? What do you choose to portray God as? So here's the fourth reason why we don't do this. Images of God is a way to govern God. Get that? What do you choose to reveal him as? It puts the power back on me. This is who my God is. And, and so will imagination govern God? Or will God govern our imagination? That's the question. Will our imagination govern God? Or will God govern our imagination? This goes back to the importance of the revealed word of God. If we don't have that, we don't have God. We have our view of God, which makes ourselves God. So think about this. We have to have a government. If you just completely follow your appetite, where do you get? Where do you get? Well, you get unhealthy, right? You have to have guidelines to restrict our appetite. We have to have something that comes in to govern our imagination. Jeremiah says that our heart is desperately wicked. Who can understand it? And from this heart will be my imagination, from which comes God. Can you see how this is going to bring us to some conclusions that will lead to distortion and sin and apart from God? Now, why is this important? Well, if you want to really know someone, you got to know them as they are, not as you think they are, right? I... Uh, <laughs> I've had a little saying I've been telling some uh our kids. Um, I, I don't think I can do that anymore. But I would tell them when, when they think they've gotten away with something, you know, they're being really clever uh, with their parents. And I, I, I tell them this. You realize you've never had a thought that I've not already thought before? And they look at me and they, what? Have you ever thought this? Yeah, I thought that too. I thought that was true until my last son. <laughs> I thought, they've, they've never done anything that I've not explored or thought. And I, I came out to our living one, one one time, and I looked at Canaan, and I'm thinking, Canaan, you look funny. What, what's up? And, and I checked it out, and half of his body was showing, <laughs> which is really kind of weird. And the other half was in the vent. I'm thinking, I've never had a thought that my son would take the vent cover out and try to get into the vent. And I, I just was flabbergasted, bewildered. And I, and I knew then that I could no longer say that statement. Because Cain evidently has had quite a few thoughts I've never had. Sometimes we try to get to know them as we think they are, and then they do something that's totally out of character, what we think is out of character. And the, th- and the problem is, they're out of character with what we think is their character. For them, yeah, this is me. We've got to know people, not as we think they are, but as they are. And if we try to enter in relationships with this idea of who, they th- who I think they are, we never can get intimate with who they are. Okay? If I was constantly doing that with, with my wife, there would be some major clashes. She's not how I think she is. She is as she is. And it's my job to get to know her as she is. Not how I think she is. And we come to God and we and we go to God and we think we think God is this way and then something happens in life and it just blows our mind and we're thinking God how can you do such things as that? Because we have this view of God. We have this image of God, not as he is, but as we think is and it will always hinder keep away intimacy with god if we're walking like that and so he says have no other graven image don't make graven images don't imagine me so in order to really know someone you've got to let them define themselves every once in a while you hear someone say i can't believe in a god who sends people to hell I can't believe in a God who sends people to hell. And I understand that. I have a hard time coming to grips with hell, people going there, and God allowing that to happen. But I've got to resist this idea of remaking God in my image. Just because I don't like it. And there's this part where we say, my God's not like that. Your God? Well, your God is a graven image. By what source do you come to this conclusion that God will or will not allow people to go to hell? Where do you get that at? Well, it just doesn't seem sensible with me. It comes from your heart. It comes from my imagination that it happens. It just doesn't fit well with how I think life ought to work. Okay, go that way, but you'll never know the God as as he is. Because you always have the God as you think he is. So, if you go this way, here's what happens. A distorted, imaginative view of God will result in sinful behavior. Will result in sinful behavior. People want God to be okay with the lifestyle they've chosen. Our view is, you know, I'm good. Everyone else is less than me. And so we have a view of God that looks at our own personal grievances mildly. And say, well, they're not that big of a deal. And so we've we've got this this view of God that, that allows that. If you want God to be racist and judgmental, And hate all the people that you hate. Then you make them to be that. So that you never have to struggle with your own hate. And say, I'm godly. I'm godly in my hate. Because God hates these things too. And so we've got this idea that that we say God is like this because I'm like this. And we make him like that. And it has nothing to do with how he's revealed himself to be. If your God is holy and just but doesn't have compassion... And graciousness, then we tend to go toward judgmental behaviors. If we, if we see him as, as gracious, but not just and holy, then we tend to be casual with sin. If we just see one dimension of his sovereignty, but not his loving and compassion, then we become angry people who are all about our dogma. If we, are, if we just see God as, if we could just see him as beautiful and all satisfying. If you don't see that side of him, you're going to serve him just enough to avoid hell. But never to want him or desire him with all your heart. What is it you struggle with in your life? Track that back to what you believe or don't believe about God. You become like what you worship. So look at how you're like. What's your nature like? What's your characteristic? What's your sin like? Then it tracks back to what you worship. How do you view God? Jeremiah 2 verse 5 says, Thus says, the Lord, what wrong did your fathers find in me that they went far from me and went after worthlessness and became worthless? What you pursue, what you worship, you become. Which is why God says and it's so good for him to say, worship me. Worship me. Don't become worthless worthless things that will die before your tomb or at your tomb if you're marked by worry and anxiety let me ask you does it assume that you're wiser than god if you're marked by anxiety and worry it's your job after all to manage the universe because you're better than god you're wiser than god dealing with temptation can we see jesus die on the cross Loving us at that moment. And when he says, don't go into that area of temptation, do we only see it as a killjoy? Do we see God as that? Or can we see the goodness of God's plan when Jesus is saying that from the cross? You see, here's the problem. Images of God conceal more than it reveals. Images of God is a way to govern God. To force him into our image. And then our false images of God... In fact, reveal false gods. Why do we not worship graven images? Because at the heart is at still a false God. It's how I see him. Let me, Exodus 32, verse 1 through 5 is the story of the Israelites when they God is these, giving these tick the Ten Commandments to Moses and He's giving them instructions. And even while that's happening, even after the Israelites have given this vow that they will worship God and Him alone, even at that moment they start worshiping false God. Gods. Exodus thirty-two talks that tells that story, verse one through five. Uh, and, and there's something very interesting in this passage. And I just want, I want you to to get this. Exodus thirty-two, verse one through five. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together. Aaron said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. Aaron said to them, take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from the hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Now, God himself did that. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before and Aaron made proclamation and said, now notice this, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. What kind of, what, notice that word in the text? How is it given to us? All caps. What's that all cap mean? Referring to the Yahweh God. In their mind, they're worshiping the God of Israel. They're worshiping the God who delivered them out of Egypt. And so it's not that we're, we don't want to worship Yahweh anymore. It's just now we want to do it through this calf. So, What they were requesting was not a new God, but an image that they could hold on to. Something that represented strength, a bull that represented strength, that brought out that one element of God, but not the others. And they gave sacrifices to it. What they really was worshiping was security, protection. We want protection. Let's do it at whatever cost, as long as we're protected Moses is not here. I'm worried. He's not. Where is he at? I need protection. And let's find it some way. And so we get this, this bull, this strength, and let's worship him. So we have some sense of protection. Here's, here's something that's been hitting me. What is our false gods? We talked about that last week, the things that we hope in, things that if we just have, we'll be really happy it's what we think about when we're left to ourselves. It, it captures us. Those reveal our gods. So what would God, according to Jared, look like? Here's, here's where we get in trouble. It's when we, when we take what God promises, what he, what he desires, and we long for it, We look to it, and we start making that God. Did you know that you could want what God wants too much? (laughs) You can want what God wants too much. You can want God's promises too much when they become your God and not the promise giver, not the God who desires. Example, we've got, we've got Abraham and Isaac in Genesis 22. Isaac was the promised son of God, or the promised son from God to Abraham. He was the one through whom uh, the nations would be blessed, through whom nations would come and, and land and countries and he was the promised one. I mean, they had him in the old age this is a miracle. When Isaac was born in Genesis 22, God says to Abraham, kill your son. I remember studying it. And I remember you may remember me saying this. That's a hard thing to understand. How can God tell someone to kill your son? Because that didn't, that didn't gel with my image of God. How, how can that happen? much less if you are Abraham. But the point of it is, is ultimately Abraham goes to the motions and is to the point of no return with his knife where God stops him and says, now that I know that you fear me more than anything else. In other words, I know that you love me more than the promise. All right, let me put this in, in today's terms. What does God, according to Jared, look like? Here's part of it. God, according to me, would be that if I obey God, if I do these things, if I follow God, then my family will rise up and they will be worshipers of God also, and God will protect them and allow them to be of great effectiveness for the kingdom of God. That's what my God looks like if I was to write up a job description. Here's another one. If I do all the things that God asked me to do, if I'm faithful to God, then God will allow our church to be effective for the kingdom of God. And that God will win Nightdale and this area to Raleigh, in fact, that we we'll, are to the Lord, and that we'll see God work through us through the kingdom. Do you know that I could want that more than God? And here's how it plays out. God, if I just do all the right things, then this is going to happen. And my children are going to be healthy and spiritually true to you. The problem is... That's not necessarily the case. God is interested in me worshiping Him and not what God does for me. If I see God as my assistant... To do his will. If I see that alone. If I see God as my assistant to do his will. Which by the way now I want to be my will. If I see him as that. God will betray me. And I'll see it as that. For instance. I could do all the right things. I could teach the word of God. I could go visiting. We can teach our folks to be evangelistic. And there can be discord that right fills the church. And do I look at that and say, God, you've betrayed me. If I see this as my main goal and God is my system to get that accomplished. Yes, that could be how I view it. If I say, I'm going to worship God and I'm going to do all the right things. I'm going to read the Bible to my children. I'm going to pray for them every day. We're going to have devotions with our kids. We're going to make sure that they are in all the right places. And then one of them turns out to be rebellious against God or they die. If I see God as my assistant to get that accomplished, then I cannot help but view God as betraying me. But if I see God as not as my assistant, But as my God. Then I must come to the conclusion that I've got to love him, worship him, obey him, let him cross my will more than whether these things get accomplished in my life. What about heaven? That's promised by God for those who follow him. What if you could have heaven? And God's presence wasn't there. If you could have heaven, God's presence wasn't there. You'd have all your family, your friends. There's no torment. There's delight of some sort. There's no pain. There's no suffering. There's no death. But God wasn't there. Does it bother you much? Does it bother you much? Only bothers you a little bit. What I'm saying is there must be a desire for God that's greater than his promises. And if we start wanting his promises more than God, then we see God only as an assistant to the real God, which may be being effective for the kingdom, maybe family security, maybe wealth. Maybe prosperity of however way we want to define it. It may be just heaven itself. And if we see God as a means to way to get there and that alone, then we've got that as God and not God himself. We've got his promises. We've got his church. For me, it's to say church is my God. It's to say a peaceful, united church that's effective for the kingdom can be my God. And as I looked at this, I realized, hey, it has been. It is to be able to say, like Job himself said, "Though he slay me, yet I will trust him, because he is God." Even though my family has been wiped out, finances has been wiped out, everything I know that has been uh, comfortable to me is now wiped out, but he is still God. We can want what God wants too much when we want it more than God. Then we we've twisted God to be our family enhancer. Do you know that's not the main purpose for God? He's not the family enhancer. He's not the the church stabilizer. Alright? He's God. He is the object of our worship. And it is that. It is that. So what do we do? Well, Elizabeth Elliot wrote a a novel called No Graven Image. story of a a lady is going out to the Ecuador area as, as a missionary, very much following her own life. And uh, she has the plan of how it's going to work. And, and the scriptural basis is for all these things of, of if I just do these things and, and do all my systems and be effective in this, then we're going to see people come to know the Lord. And basically, when she gets over there, it all blows up. Nothing happens as she thinks it ought to. And the last paragraph she writes, and, and, and by the way, it ends in a bad note. There's no happy ending. Um, and Elliot has said that's the point. And she writes, if God was merely my assistant, then he had betrayed me. Or in the light, clear light of day, if he is God, then he has freed me. As long as he was my assistant, he could never edit me nor reshape me. But now that he is God, I can no longer label this work as useful or useless because now the work as well as the labeling is God's. It wouldn't make sense for everything that God does to make sense. It wouldn't make sense for everything God does to make sense. So what do we do? We go to God as he's revealed himself. He gives us some right here in the in the text, verse five, verse six. He is one. He's the omniscient, all knowing God. He is the one who is everywhere, omnipresent. He says, "I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God." He is the one that yearns for our heart. Okay, he's the one who wants our hearts' affections. And then, as we keep on reading, verse six, he. He is the one who shows steadfast love to thousands. And we contrast that with those five. He's the one who, at the same time, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. But yet, I'm also at the same time steadfast love. Is the kessed word is the in the New Testament is given to us as grace. He. he how can we put these two together? God is saying, I'm, I'm already the opposites. And I'm here in one. I'm judgment and I'm grace together. I'm these. I'm, this is how he reveals himself. You see, the, the fact of the matter is, is we still need an image. We still need an image for us to be able to relate. So what does God do? He doesn't let us create our own images. He gives us an image. Colossians 1.15 Referring to Jesus Christ, he is the image of the invisible God. He is the uh, the image, the icon of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creations. And so God says, I know you need an image so that you can rightly relate to me. And so I give you Jesus Christ. He is how I want to be presented. In fact, he is me and a way that you can relate. He's not just some abstract idea. If it's just some abstract idea, we can't relate with that. We can't have a personal relationship, which is why in some of the religions like like Buddhism and and to some extent uh, Islam, you can't relate because it's this abstract idea. And then there's others where it's like Hinduism where you create it. God, that can't be either. And so God doesn't allow us to invent it. He gives it to us in Jesus Christ, the image of God of God. Hebrews 1, three, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature and he upholds the universe by the word of his power after making purification of sins for he sit down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So what do we do? We go to God as he has revealed himself to be. Don't Have a God that's too small, as J.P. Phillips wrote in his book. Don't look at just as your conscience as God. You've got to go to the text itself, which is what he's telling the Israelites to do. Go to what I'm given to you in writing. Let this govern your life. But allow it to take you where it says. It'll take you to a place that will cross your will. Every human that comes to the God as he reveals himself will have their will crossed. He will not be as you want him to be. He will be as he is. And then, worship. Surrender. Bow down to God. Allow him to say no in your life. Our tendency is that we don't want to have to give up our own right to say what's best for me. Here's, Here's the thing. We don't want a God who says I'm wrong. We want the emotional jollies of worshiping with God. But we do not want the surrender crossing our will by God. We want the, the feel good. But we don't want the surrender, the obedience that comes with that. We like to say to God, Okay, I'll take five pounds of God. I don't want all of you. Just enough for me to get through the hump of this week. But please, don't give me enough Where I have to change my life. Don't give me enough where I can't do whatever I want. Don't give me enough of you, God, that makes me give away my wealth and money in larger portions. Don't don't give me enough of you where I have to restrict myself and where my lifestyle is now cramped. where, Where you tell me not to shack up with someone. Don't give me enough of that. I just want enough of God to help me get through my life. But don't give me so much that I feel uncomfortable. With what I think life ought to be. That is worshiping a graven image. God as you imagine Him to be. Which in fact reveals your real God, a false one. I want to challenge you to look at this text. And ask yourself, what is it that I imagine God to be? If God was up to me, what would he look like? Or what would she look like? Or whatever. If it was up to me. And I just want to challenge you. Are you using God? If you're using God for me in my case for church security and church effectiveness then that's god and you got to let god allow him give him permission to blow it up if it's family security if it's your job if it's your money if it's entertainment it's a promiscuous lifestyle of some sort. you got to allow God to blow it up and say, God, you are God. I worship you. Do to me as you see fit. You say, well, oh, Pastor, that's awfully vulnerable. I don't know what he'll do. As I said before, you will never be more vulnerable than God himself was in sending Jesus Christ to reveal himself to us. And we stripped him and lashed him and shredded him and put him on a cross by our sin. You will never be more vulnerable than what God is. Let's pray.